Welcome to the new edition of the Repod. You've got me, Wayne Riles, and Martin Cassidy, Wayne Baker. And we're here with another special today. We've got a special, special guest on. I'm delighted to get him on the pod. I was excited when I was told about this uh, a couple of weeks ago by Martin. And here we are um, today doing the pod uh, with none other than you'll know him if you're big into football and you remember Sunday Supplement. Uh, we have Sam Wallace on the pod. So, Sam, I'm buzzing you here, mate. I, I, I can't believe I nearly forgot to come on. Actually, I've had a busy morning, but thank you for coming on. <laughs> How are you doing? It's nice to be here. Nice to meet you all. Um, I'm a, an old friend of Martin's, and um, I, uh, I've always taken an interest in the refereeing world and the assistance as well. And I think it's a it's a crucial part of the game. And obviously, um, Martin is right at the heart of that. He's He's really championed referees and assistants, especially at the grassroots, where we need them. We need you guys for the game to to happen, and and that goes right up to right up to the elite level. I've always felt that referees, when you look out on a pitch, of Premier League pitch, there it's always the guy, him and his assistants, who earn the least, and they have no one in the stadium who really feels like is on their side. It feels like everyone's trying to um, kind of put pressure on them and make their life more difficult. And I just think as a journalist, you, you're fascinated by that. Those people, those people who go out and do such a difficult job and really the best they can hope for is not to be noticed. I mean, that's what most referees say. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a really under-examined part of the game. Uh, Martin with his charity Ref Support UK has done a lot to change that and a lot to stand up for referees. And, and to be honest, they, they have needed that. And, I don't know if we'll discuss this maybe later, but clearly refereeing at the elite end at the Premier League, select one, select two, is, is changing very, very quickly. And the way that referees have been developed and the way that they've been promoted is changing. So it's it's really interesting. And and obviously I work for the Daily Telegraph and and our readers are fascinated by it. They're fascinated by the refereeing world. Mm. One, of, one of the things that I want to get out, out of the way, get noticed straight on, and I know I've said it to you many times, is... I don't think ref support and the voice we've got would be anywhere near without your help, mate. And you were one of the first, particularly press side of it rather than TV side of it, that really got what we were trying to do. And, you know, doing exclusives and pushing our stuff, it just made the spotlight line up on it because historically, you know, the referee's always been fair game. The FA tell referees and the referee association, don't go public with your problems, don't. Keep it away, tucked in a corner, we'll sort it out for you. Then they don't get the support, then they don't get the outcomes they want from when they've been assaulted, abused. So to have you, you definitely the first on board to say, I'm gonna go big with this. I'm gonna I'm gonna go big on big in print and, and big online. So from my point of view, and a lot of grassroots referees out there really want to thank you, mate, the way you got behind the cause and continues to be such a positive, you know, influence on refereeing, mate. So thanks. No, I appreciate it. I'm interested to know really your, you guys as grassroots referees, grassroots referees, what your experiences are and 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 how you feel it's changing, if it is changing in in recent years. I think I think coming back to the bit I just told you about that obviously I'm waiting for this documentary that I finished to be to be put out there so people can can view it from a from a junior level um, really um, just to see that you know you you see all these stories and a lot of videos that I've seen or what Martin shared. Predominantly, they're all kind of men's football at the lower levels of, of the grassroots game, I, I would imagine. Um, believe it or not, this happens at junior football, at kids' football. I mean, I, I Wayne does the other Wayne does a lot more refereeing than, than what I do, but I do my fair share. And, you know, I've even been kind of threatened refereeing for my own club uh, an under an under eights game this season. You know, literally wanted to fight me over, over a free kick. A coach wanted to fight me over a free kick that was... It, it it was just it was such a fifty fifty. We were kind of coming together, um, and I, I couldn't believe what what was going off. You know, one minute I'm 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 refing a game with seven year old kids, I blow up for nothing, uh, or I didn't blow up for nothing, or whatever it was, and he he just went absolutely berserk and, and was literally stomping onto the pitch, and it was just kind of like, what seriously, what are you doing? And you know, at that age as well. I mean, I know. I know football is competitive and, and we all love it for that, for it being competitive um, and they're competitive even at that age, but there's no leagues, there's no points. It doesn't matter. The scores don't really matter. And and at that age, what I always tell, when, when we take new teams on and we have new coaches come to the club and they have all these grand ideas of making them play like Barcelona and what have you, 
and you know they have all these fan, fancy drills and I'm like it's not about that at this age it's just about letting them play with the ball letting them enjoy it letting over the next few years let them fall in love with football do stuff that's fun take the ball away play bulldogs play fun games and once you've once they've fallen in love with it as they get older as they develop into older kids they'll eat out of the palm of your hand they'll believe every word you're telling them and that's where you can start molding more of a football side to it when they become older so for me the reason why I did the grassroots documentary and, and I got Martin involved to speak on, on the documentary was because I feel that since COVID, since lockdown, um, since the, the current climate that we're living in, the cost of living crisis, everybody seems to be angry. Everybody seems to be more aggressive. And where do they take that frustration out on? Well, it's, it's either Saturday at a professional game or a grassroots game, or it's a Sunday, a junior game, or even a grassroots men's game on a Sunday. And that's where we're seeing a lot of this societal anger come out. And the ones that the, that seem to be brunting it all up is the, the very man who stands in the middle, who is there to make sure that that game can go ahead. And they're actually there doing you a favour, because a lot of them don't take a lot of money, 15, 20 quid. I mean, I'm really lucky at my club that the adults that, that ref for me, we only have four. Uh, what me and Wayne included. We don't take any fees away from my club in order to make my club thrive. So for me, it was kind of like I wanted to get a message out there as a filmmaker to put something together to say, look, these are real people, just general day-to-day people that have got a love for footy, that want to referee, they enjoy refereeing, but the very thing that's going to stop them refereeing and stop the games going ahead is you giving them abuse, the parents, the players, the coaches. And so I've seen a deterioration. I've seen a drop in numbers. We've seen uh, incidents where we train people up and they don't last six months, they're out the door, they've been abused, they've been threatened, you know, whatever. And it's like, when does it get to the point where we, we say enough's enough and we have to start turning the tables and, um, and, and showing people how to behave in a different way forward? And I think what really sold the dream for me was when Martin came on board and said, look, this is... This is a podcast. We want to be a little bit different. And even though we're not going to defend everything that ever happens from a referee, because everybody has bad days and bad games, we're going to give them a platform. And you know what I really find interesting? I find I love hearing stories of footballers. I love hearing stories of managers and what they've experienced in football. Nobody's ever really gone down a channel and let referees have a really big platform to say their experiences and what their funny stories and what they liked, what they disliked. And having this, to be able to give them that opportunity... For me, it's just it's just massive. So if we can get people tuned in and show refs as being normal people, then maybe we can get a bit of affection for them, and maybe that way they can they can be more appreciated for the job that they do. That that personally is 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 what I wanna wanna get out of it, and, and my experiences of grassroots. I was refing a friendly for under 16s for a group that called themselves the Doncaster Boys. They fancied themselves as like the route to professionalism and academies, and it was a friendly. It was my third game, um, and I awarded a handball. It was definitely a handball. <clears throat> and at half time, one of the coaches came storming over. How could that be an handball? He put his hands down. I'm like, yeah, but his hands were up when he actually hit the ball. And um, he was effing and blinding and calling me a liar. And I honestly thought he was going to swing for me. And on my way home that morning, I actually thought, not for me. I'm quitting. They, they, they can all do one. You rang me, uh, didn't you? You rang me. I did. Yeah, I rang Wayne while while I finished. I said that I'm I'm not here for that, you know. Um, I even told them they could stick the money, you know, keep your money. I don't just just make sure you never ask me to ref for you again. I phoned the missus. I says, look, I know I know it's only my third game, but I don't think this is for me. I phoned Wayne. He convinced me otherwise, and years later, I'm still at it. <laughs> Wayne, how long have you been refing now? Two two and a bit years. Not long. Um, I mean, I wasn't really into football until my son started playing. And then him there got hold of me. Um, I started running line. I then got my ref badge. Uh, I'm on the committee. Um, I'm a club sponsor. Um, I'm absolutely smitten with it. And I, I adore grassroots and what it stands for and, you know, and, and where it's going. Um, and I'm so into it that it's the best thing I've ever done. I should have done it years and years ago. It's known as the hatchet man at the club. <laughs> it's interesting. I think it is very interesting that the way that referees are perceived and treated differently. So there's there's always been this argument that that Premier League or Select Group One referees should 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 um, do interviews after games, but it's always it's always on the basis that they um, they've made a mistake and they must come and atone for it. A bit like 
being sent to the head teacher and being told, mm. right, look, what's your excuse? You're here to apologise. You're here to, to grovel a bit. And I, I've always said to clubs, uh, or when, when we've chatted sort of informally, if you get a player sent off, sometimes that's the biggest incident in the game. That's what the newspapers are writing about. That's what the pundits are focusing on. Can you remember the last time a player that got sent off did a post-match interview? Because I can't. No. They, are, they are hidden away. They don't speak for weeks. But the, the flip side of that is that the whole game seems to, and, and clearly a lot of the time it's a, it's a huge error on the part of that player. It's a silly foul. It's a mistake. It's, some of them refuse to talk about red cards, specific red cards for the rest of their careers. And yet they want referees to come out after games and put their hand up and go, oh, yeah, you know, I really made a mistake there. I've let everyone down. How, I mean, just a simple comparison like that, the way that the game works, the way that the, the whole sort of machine works after po in post-match where the blame is apportioned and, the, you know, you've got Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville on the telly and you've got social media's ablaze and, and then the newspapers are involved. It's, it's fascinating to me that people think that referees should come and apologise, but they, they never talk about that to players. And so my, my view of, of referees giving, of giving interviews, which I think we're, we're clearly we're moving towards that. Howard Webb is, is talking himself in a way that his predecessor, Mike Riley, never did. And, and evidently, every time they sell the rights to TV, which is domestically every three years, TV wants more. It wants more and more from the game, whether that's interviews in the changing room at halftime or it's more access to the players. And then it, clearly at some point, the Premier League will, will say, yeah, well, you know, we'll give you the referees after the game and, and PGMO will have to deal with that. But at that point, that's when I feel people need, again, and maybe this will be Martin because he's pretty much the only one who does, but people who have experience of that, who, who like Martin has, has, has been an official at the top level, they need to say, well, hang on a minute, we'll, we'll do that, but don't just bring us out when we're there to apologise because VAR messed up or we got the lines wrong on an offside or we sent the wrong guy off, all those things that can happen. We, we want to be interviewed when we've done really well. We want to be interviewed when, this, this, when the, referee, uh, the referee got it all right. I'm not sure TV will be such as, will be, you know, and, and my, own, my own media, organ, will we be as interested in that? Probably not. So as the game changes, and it's changing really quickly at the elite end and the way that referees are being handled, and I think that is broadly a good thing, it's really important that the referees have, a, have someone who's prepared to defend them and say that they're not just going to be pushed out as sacrificial lambs when things have gone wrong, as they inevitably will at some point. Um, and I think, just to finish that point, that, that clearly will have a huge effect on, on how you guys are perceived when you're refereeing at grassroots, because we know, and as Martin has said many times, that people replicate what they see on the television in their own games. So it's, it's really important that we that we give status to the referee, that he or her and, and, and their assistants are seen as people who, who deserve respect, who have worked very, very hard for their position, who have climbed a really, really um, high mountain to get to where they are. And of course, we know that with footballers. We know that if you're a professional footballer at any level, if you're paid to play football, you've done brilliantly well. You're the best kid in your school. You're the best kid in your town. Even if you're playing League Two, National League, you, I always say that to any footballer that what, no matter what level you're playing at professionally, you've done a great, you've done brilliantly. You've really swum the channel. I think it should be the same for referees as well. And and I think it's all about, and I hope Howard can do this, and I, and I really do, it's about changing the perception of referees from this sort of nasty kind of attitude people have that they're attention seekers or they're just there because they, they couldn't be footballers to actually people who professionally have done a remarkable job and have given up so much of their time for, as you say, very little money. And that's to be admired. And um, it's all about perception change. It, it certainly, certainly can be changed. It certainly can be changed. We're not the pantomime villain, are we? <laughs> no. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it, really, it really is a question of, of if, if you can change that perception at the top, I think it, it really helps you guys at the grassroots. And there's lots of things that can be done. Um, and and the, 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 key, the key thing is the Premier League, obviously, is raising standards. And they have this notion that we've got the best players in the world, we've got the best managers in the world. 
want to have the best referees in the world. I I have never been of the opinion that we've had bad referees. I think we've had referees under intense scrutiny, and we've had referees who, because of the nature of television coverage and because of just the incredible technology that you have in high definition football, of uh, high definition TV, that you can see everything. You mm-hmm. in a way that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you just you just couldn't see. I mean, if you watch a lot of those games, even if you just watch a clip on YouTube of a game from the 70s or 80s, without being disrespectful, the referee doesn't he doesn't move out the centre circle that often. You know, he he kind of guides the game, but he is very very light touch. Whereas now, referees are making hundreds and hundreds of decisions every game with their assistants, and everyone everyone is instantaneously replayed in pin sharp high definition. So. My view is always it's not the game that's changed. It's got quicker, maybe the the pitches have got better, the ball's got the the ball is lighter. But what's changed is what we see, and what we see is everything. And that is that is really hard for the guy in the middle who's got who's got one look at it until VAR intervenes. Mm, absolutely, Martin, is that what you want to add? Sounds unusual, like unusually quiet there. Well, I, 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 it's <laughs> uh, it's hearing that take on it. Like you have samples. You're talking about stuff people don't really mention. And and with it, with the TV, when when I, I finished when I got I got I got injured, is Prozone was the big thing. Oh, we got Prozone, and this little red dot and black dot used to go around. And then you, you could just tie that explain, up. Martin, you should just explain what Prozone is because some listeners might not know, but it is really yeah, true, fascinating. True, actually. Prozone was like a similar to VAR, with loads of cameras everywhere and goal line technology on the referees, on the players, and it was all that data about how fast you run and and all this sort of stuff was was, was all on Prozone. So they started using it with referees. Referees were all given. We were even giving them on the, on the line heart rate monitors and everything else. And then on, it was just like dots. It was like an old video game where there's like just a black dot, red dot, and blue. Dot. And all this little thing would move around, and it was like worlds changing. We would look at it and then. Um, the because they might not even know this, mate, is that they have like people who analyze it. Even back then, when I finished 12 years ago, where, where they say, right, you 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 never got that decision right because on your heart rate monitor, you 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 weren't fit enough. You, your heart rate was like at the maximum, and you missed that penalty because you you're not fit. And they could they could they could do it all. And here's your stats on your fitness test. The BMI was this, your blood pressure was this. Now it's just gone. It's just gone Star Trek level now. It's gone from like. You know, a little a little TV sport game to what it is now, and and add add that in with all the cameras, and we used to think, oh my god, I've got a live TV game now um, with four cameras, <laughs> and you would miss decisions, and what you wouldn't get picked up on it because oh, the camera didn't really cover that line. Oh, historically, right back to Hereford, it's still like that now. When you go to Hereford, you've had a dodgy assessor, you think, I want to be, I want to be here. Uh, Right under that stands because the assessor can't see you, the cameraman can't see you. That just would not happen at any level of the game now. They got VO even at grassroots level, so you could always, in some circumstances, that I to get away with it. But like you said, Sam, we can't now. And and on the fitness levels, tying that in, when when uh, I don't want to sound like when I was on and all that, but the fitness levels we had, and it's it's similar now, if not if not even more typical, was more than the fitness level to get in the Royal Marines. We used to do the brief test, and the Royal Marines, I think, was 7.2, something like that. To be on a football league line as a lino, it was 11.2 on a brief test. And I remember doing that. I was really into me running then. I, I could do it really, really well. And we'd go up there, and we'd select who would be there. We'd all be there together. And Andre Mariner would batter everybody. Andre Mariner. Now, you talk about Andre Mariner now. He's just finished. Oh, bless him. But he, no one ever strikes him as, as a fit referee because he hasn't got a turn of pace and... You and Michael Oliver look at his turn of pace. He looks a lot fitter. They wear things like the bottom of the, of the footy shoes are white. The purpose to do that because it's like the the, the bunny rabbit. When you're running away, it looks really fast because the white thing is going. So all these little things, all these neat nuances that referees are doing to make you look faster. But I never heard anyone say how fit Andre Mariner was. But he was getting to like 16, 17 on the beat test. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's true. I mean, you look at some of those referees now, Anthony Taylor... Chris Kavanaugh, they are really, really decent athletes. They're not, athletes, they're not yeah. professional athletes, but they, 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 they've got a whole other dimension to their job, which is applying the ever-changing laws of the game in very, very um, short timeframes. And I, I, 
I mean, the, the games are so fast now, and you only really appreciate that when you watch, like, you, you get, oh, I just want to watch that, you know, the highlights from that cup final. I have a quick look at that from the 80s. You think, I remember that as a kid. You look at it now and you think, my God, it's so slow compared to how it is now. And the refs, the refs cannot afford to be, they come off shattered. They really do. And like you say, Martin, I mean, they, the demands the demands are high, but it's not, it is not simply a kind of athletic endeavour. It's it's cerebral as well. I mean, I've always thought that when they do get sent to the monitor, obviously when when refs go to the monitor, we pretty much assume that they're going to go with the VAR call. But I mean, try going for a sort of an eleven kilometre run and then and then being told to watch like <laughs> ten seconds of highlight. You got you know you're sweating in your eyes and you're you're panting and then you've got to totally change your whole sort of neurological um, task to watch this screen. And you can see their shoulders going up and down because they're catching their breath. It's, it's, it's really almost two completely different jobs. I, I really believe that. And obviously the whole, whole principle behind VAR is that the, the on-field referee still makes the final decision. That's why we've got these screens by the side. Mm -hmm. To me, it would make a lot more sense to say that the guy in the studio who sat there with a cup of tea, his, his heartbeat is not going 10 to the dozen. Let him make that decision and convey it to the, to the referee on the pitch. But this is the way FIFA wanted. You know what? That that is that is something that I've thought since more or less day one. And the reason why I thought it is because I, I, I watch a fair bit of rugby league, watch a fair bit of rugby union, and uh, if you watch those, it is the it is the what do they call it now? Is the uh, TMO whatever they are, the the guys that call them. They're the ones that make the decision for the referee, and they tell him yes, it's a try. No, it's not a try. This has happened. That's happened. And because they're in it, they're obviously qualified refs. They're sat there, they're watching it on multiple angles that the, the, the referee's not seen or can't see. Why Why do we have to have this running over to monitor? Why can't we just do... I think we spoke to Andy Amler the other day and he, and he, he revealed to us exclusively that in the Women's World Cup, they're going to uh, trial the... You know, like when uh, Howard Webb was on Sky Sports and they let you hear the audio between the, 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 the referees and the assistants, that they're going to trial that on TV so you can hear it. And I think, obviously, that's not going to help people in, in the stadiums. But for the, the audience that are on TV, that actually adds to the experience. So I, like when I hear rugby and I hear them talking, I hear them making the decision and they're explaining why they're making the decision. That helps me to understand it as a fan. It's something that I really find uh, intriguing. So I think that, that by having it, like they have this screen, and I, I always thought, wow, it's mad. They've got to run all the way over there. I've never thought of it like you did. You put in a really good way to say that, Imagine being running around absolutely tired and all of a sudden you've got to stop and watch something, take it all in, process it, and then make a decision. Why not just, why not give the author? I mean, the referees that sit and make these decisions anyway. So why not let them make the decisions and, and tell the, the referee what they need to do? I, I, I've always thought that. So I'm really pleased you, you brought that up, actually, because I've thought that for a while. Yeah, I'm an almost 50-year-old tubby little shit. I mean, you know, I'd die if that were me on one of them pitches. So the fact that somebody could stand there and do it for me would be a godsend because I won't be able to breathe or talk to them. <laughs> but then it's interesting, isn't it? Because we're talking about, so not only have referees paid less than everyone else, which is, a, you know, that they that they accept that, but, and they're well paid at the top level, but they have to run around as much as the players. And now we're going to be able to listen to their conversations as well. Mm. So that's mm. another thing. I mean, I'd love to be able to hear the players' conversations. It was really interesting during COVID being in the stadiums. We were, we were allowed to, to cover the football when the stadiums were closed. And you heard a lot more of the, of, of the players' conversations and the referees as well. And, um, and it's, it was even for you know, people who've been around football, it was, it was quite telling just how many... Not not every player, but there were certainly a few players in every team who would it would almost be a constant dialogue with the referee every time mm -hmm. the ball was dead, and sometimes even when it wasn't, and also from the bench as well. I mean, we all knew that these conversations take place, but I think it, even so, I was struck by how much of that there was there was for the referee to manage during the game. So yeah, I'm all I'm all for the audio the audio of referees being and their assistants and their vars being broadcast. I just feel that I just feel that again we need to put it in context. These are these are people who are who are, who are engaged in a physical task, a quite exhausting physical task, who are in a stadium of 50, 60, 70,000 people who are talking to a guy 
in a studio 200 miles away as well. And all this information is being passed very, very quickly and and kind of analysed between them while while things are still going on in front of them. Even if the ball is dead, there's still players arguing with them and there's still players, um, there still might be players that they have to kind of keep an eye on on one part of the pitch. So this is not an easy thing to do. And you're, you're now being told, I know all the refs are now being told in select, well, don't swear. I mean... <laughs> You know they, they, they've got they've got so many different things. It feels like riding a bike with a stack of plates on the balance of the edge, you know, <laughs> over well, a tightrope. It's just so many different things to think about. And, and I I I do I do like the transparency, but again, it's the, it seems to be the pressure is on the refs to deliver. You know, run around, keep up with the game, make the right decision, and also at the same time. Like you used to be told at school, show your workings out. You know, tell us exactly yeah, how you're, yeah, yeah, how yeah, you're yeah, doing yeah. this. I mean, what more do you want them to do? I mean, you know, maybe they could mow the pitch afterwards as well. It just seems to me to be this ever-increasing list of responsibilities. And then you still get told, well, you're not consistent enough. You did this last week. It's difficult. It's difficult. I mean, I'd be interested, Martin, what do you think about the next generation, because clearly there's been a, you know, Andre's retired this summer. You had um, Kevin Friend, uh, Mike Dean, uh, Martin Atkinson, might be missing someone out there. Oh, um, uh, John Moss. Uh, you know, so, yeah. you, so you're talking about five really big prem referees have gone in the space of 12 months. I mean, how do you how do you feel that the new breed are doing? And, as it, and do you think that they've got a handle on it, on, on who comes next? Yeah, I think there's been steps in how, how they acclimatise to the levels of football, which is really important that no one notices. They used to do it as a lino where you'd go in, you'd go lino at a level above and your referee at a certain level above. They got rid of that a few years back where you got to a certain level, you had to be a lino or you had to be a ref. I know it's assistance, but that's not my language. And what would happen was, all I found really useful of is that when they were doing the old school, there was, uh, now, now you say select group two, is all the officials on, on, on the championship, which is which are all professional. So we could go from being a Torquay one week to going to be at Wolves the next week on a Wednesday after. Massive jump within days of it. So I get why there needs to be like, now there's a group that only does League One and Two, and there's a group that does just championship, and there's a group that does the, the Premier League. That really helped. And what happened is when you brought in, really helped me anyway, because it's the protocols. When you do a Premier League game, you got to get to a hotel four hours before kickoff. That's sacrosanct. And and you, and then you get bust in in a blacked out like Mercedes into a like sterile place, and you get out of the ground and and off you go. But if, if you're not fully aware of that, when I I first did that level of game, it was just look, you're doing really well. We're going to give you a go in a Premier League game to see if you're good for next season. I, it was no one told me about it. I just got your eye of any saying meet at the Copthorne Hotel. At this time, I'm like, okay, what do I do with my missus? She's coming, my me, me, me brother's coming, what do they do? And it was all like, it throws you a bit. So it's really important to see the acclimatisation of that. And today, um, the PGMR has announced that uh, Darren Bond and Tim Robinson are now going to be on the Premier League. Well, now, so I missed that one, Martin. Did you miss that, mate? That. Sorry, mate. I would have sent you, I was busy. Uh, but um, the, so they're now select group one. They're now on, on the Premier League. Now, Tim Robinson, when I was coaching, uh, down at level three, two B, other lads that were other lads and girls that are coming through now, they're the sort of ones we were finding at that level. Now Tim Robinson was identified right back then as an absolute talented match official. Still took him a long time to get where he is now. We lost a few years, so I think that that process of they call it what did they call it fast tracking, which I, I'm not I'm not a big fan of the idea of fast tracking because I think everyone should have the same opportunity. But just like Wayne Rooney is a player, some people develop quicker than others. Just like Jamie Vardy, Jamie Vardy, some develop late, and then he like he got picked up 27, whatever it was. But they still should have the same opportunity, no matter what age they are. So I'm a great believer in in what's happened. And I think um, that inherently people are retiring. You get rid of like seven. I think it's 10 over the last three years have gone, replaced by, say, four or five or six. And they're not, there's no experience. So what's happening is you're getting a lot, the higher percentages of referees on the Premier League I haven't got that much Premier League experience. And then what happens is, which again, it's a political move. David Ellery was huge on this, which was which, which why it was so bad, was that to be a FIFA referee, you've got to do, I think it's two years at the top flight level of the league in your country. 
before you can be a, 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 a FIFA referee. Now, the FIFA referees got different levels of referee as well because some do the Champions League, some do the Europa League. So, again, there's a climatization pro- process there. But each federation only gets a certain amount of FIFA positions. And if it's if it's not filled, you look a bit of a knobhead as it is it, 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 um, as a national governor body of football. So he pushed them through, get them through, get them through. So you have these things like what just happened at the, the FA Cup final this weekend. Scott Ledger has been on there for 13 years, Premier League. He's only just done only just done the FA Cup final this week. Well, I, I would suggest, I don't know the man, I, I know of him. That's probably because David Ellery didn't like him and he, and, he, and he wasn't getting him. And the same happened to Klattenberg. So you get these other, other things coming into the pot to stop people progressing and I think that's what we've seen over the years I think Howard's will has stopped that and will and will give everyone the fair level chance and I think we said this to the Andy Ambler Sam that um Howard said something about we're pulling the curtains back for everyone can see and that that that's brilliant that's what's happening similar to what you were saying and I think that's what's going to happen here there's going to be a bit more behind the select group two in the championship and those assistants have going up the shame was that they actually announced, I think it was Mike Malarkey announced it, that they weren't going to promote anyone to the Premier League line as an assistant, as assistant, first time ever. So what's the point of marking them all that season, having a whole merit list, you know what I mean? So there's little things that, that could be better, but I, I'm really hopeful, more than ever, like I said to Andy Ambler, that the people in place now with Andy Ambler and, and Howard Webb, that we are going to get the this, this, this support, we are going to get the profile, having people like you as a journalist, recognising that and, and wanting that too. For the first time in over a decade, that I'm really hopeful that it's going to go to another level and they're going to be supported properly. I might have to change pod name then, you know, if there's nothing to uh, support them about, I might have to call us something else. <laughs> <laughs> can I, can I just ask, just just changing the subject just slightly? Um, we've not we've not really spoke about it on this pod yet about the the massive incident that happened at the Europa League final last last week. Which obviously was, I mean, I watched the game, and before anything even happened in the airport afterwards, I, I can remember texting these two, and, and I literally said, "I've never watched a game of football like this, never in my life. I've seen mm. sideline problems, I've seen troubles on field, I've seen players being nightmares, I've seen coaches be carded. I can't ever recall a game where, I mean, I'm, I'm not even sure how many coaches were carded. I think it was about five at one point, and the stuff that happened." obviously afterwards and what Mourinho did and the appalling scenes that we've seen at that airport were just unbelievable when he was with his family. I, I, I can't I can't get in my head, regardless of how frustrated I've ever been at a football match, if I'd have absolutely seen a referee that I, even if I thought it was shocking, where I would think it were acceptable for me to go over to him and and, and abuse him the way he were when he had when he had his, 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 his daughter, I think, and his wife there. But rather than just the incident, I know Martin put this out on Twitter the other day, and I was it yesterday. I can't believe what I read that UEFA have actually come out recently and <laughs> questioned his um, standard of officiating that game. And, and I watched the game, and I can be really objective, and I can really take myself out of the zone and, and be honest with it. I thought how he ref that game were unbelievable, considering what I've seen. I'm, I'm, ne- I'm never in my in, in any game of football I've ever watched. Have I seen the level of unrest on the touchline? And Michael Oliver, at literally at one point, holding back coaches and players while he was trying to watch a video. I mean, it was it was it was unreal. It was like watching some like a movie. Something had gone wrong. I just want to know what your thoughts are on obviously the incident, but what UEFA have come out. And I know I don't know enough about this. I'll be honest. Um, mine's obviously a junior football level, but there seems to be a lot of rumblings and people obviously moan quite a lot about UEFA. And for me, I, I can't believe they've come out with that statement and kind of pinned a little bit of blame on Anthony for that game. How he got through it and managed it and repped it for one of the longest games of football I've ever seen as well. He should come out there. He should be awarded. He should have a medal for what he did. And instead, he's getting abused and attacked at an airport. And the very same body that, that, that put him in that situation by not giving him a, a private run to the plane or putting him in a room, getting him out of the way. They must have known, somebody must have known that that was a situation that could have gone off by putting him in the airport at the same time with all these Roma fans. I just want to know your thoughts. Just, I'm really interested in what you think on that. 
Yeah, I, I think this is one of those sad confluences of uh, of power and politics, whereby UEFA, I mean, we could talk for a long time about the situation they find themselves in. They've, they've clearly they're still in this row over the European Super League with Real Madrid, Barcelona, and Juventus. I mean, that's complicated itself. There's a big court judgment coming up either next month, actually, or in autumn over in the in the um, so that's the the um, yeah. So that'd be the EU, uh, the EC, the Competitions Commission. So they are that is an they are obsessed with that. And and UEFA have reorganised the Champions League post twenty twenty four into something which, when you see it, you you won't like it. But it's going to be. Is, very it, is, it two, is it the two leagues where they put you to two leagues now post the group stages? It's that going to be one league. It's going to be one, one league. league. That's um, it. And is it and the top? Eight qualify or something. So yeah, it's very complicated, but it, it's going to come as a shock to a lot of football fans. I mean, it's been written about quite a lot, but I think people have quite taken on board. And, and anyway, it's a reflection of the political pressures on UEFA to try and hold this this what what is it now 70, 80 year old organisation together and keep all the clubs inside. And I do feel that there is, sadly, there is a little bit of. Um, reluctance and hesitation to speak as clearly as they should do on these matters. For example, I thought PGMO's statement in the aftermath of those, those that footage from the airport was really good. I thought it they they didn't pussyfoot around. They used strong words like abhorrent, and they backed Anthony Taylor as one would hope an employer would. Mm. So I think that was a reflection of PGMO's independence of Howard sort of empathy with what it's like to be a referee and I was impressed by that I didn't think there was they went for it and that's how it should be um so on the UEFA side of it it's yeah as grassroots referees you're obviously going to notice that and um it wasn't I think in that instance you're just looking for clarity you're looking for leadership and support that's very important Uh, just on on the on the actual incident itself again it's a small thing but it's something that always sticks in my mind when, I, when I'm coming back from a from a game in Europe, and I see you often see the officials um, in the airport, and they're they're impossible to miss because there's three there's three <laughs> four of them or whatever. They've all got the same luggage, they've all got the same suit on. Think, Wait a I recognise that, but oh yeah, I know who that is. And um, and they kind of sort of walk around, desperate not to make eye contact with anyone. And I always felt. I always felt at first, oh, you know, maybe they're being a bit unfriendly. I'm a journalist. I've tried to talk to them and they've sort of given me the pressure off. And, and but now I kind of really see why. And again, I, I asked the question, Anthony Taylor's flying commercial. So he's flying, he's flying back on a flight that anyone can book a seat on. When was the last time a football club or a football team or a squad of players flew commercial? They all fly on private jets, yep. even for domestic games. Or if they go by train, they have their own carriage. So again, I'm not saying that referees should get private jets everywhere and that and, and it's not very good for the environment anyway. But what I am saying is look how we treat them differently. Look how we have it. They are no less critical to the game than the players, but we expect them to fight their way through an airport. I'm sure sure they get a nice chauffeur driven car to the airport. I'm sure they get picked up at the other end as they should do. They're not on they're not on the metro like the rest of us. But but even so, it's just those little things that 99% of the time, they're fine. It's fine. You can fly back and, and nothing happens. But it's that it's that 1% or that 0.5% where it's not been risk assessed, where people haven't thought it through. I think he got a later flight in the day, didn't fly back in the morning, which is as is right. He's not like he's not like some fugitive flea in the country. And it's not been thought of. And and that's my that would be the takeaway for me if, if I was a select group one referee thinking about going into Champions League, going to being on the FIFA list, as Martin mentioned, I'd be thinking, are they actually thinking, are they, are they thinking about me here? You know, are they thinking about my safety? And who are the people speaking on their behalf? Because refereeing is a really competitive um, profession. And, and I think there has, this is something we haven't really talked about, but I think there has always been a feeling that if you speak out, then it will count against you in your career. You can be an outspoken footballer. You can be a Zlatan, you know, or you can be an Eric Cantona. And because you're, you're just such a genius, you'll get picked anyway. That, that you know, it, it, referees, there's a lot of choice and people are kind of, there's obviously there's good referees, there's top referees, but people can always find a reason not to select them. As has, you know, as has been the case as, 
as as Martin mentioned, that was a really interesting point about Scott Ledger. I didn't realise he, he he was so long overdue a cup final. He's, he's a really good assistant, and mm-hmm. and obviously we all know the story about Glattenberg having you know basically getting the FA Cup final at the last minute. I think it was in 2016 because he'd been given the Champions League final, and so the FA thought, oh Christ, we you know we've got to give him this, um, otherwise we're going to lose off. So just to go back to my original point, referees are not and assistants are not encouraged to speak out. In fact, the opposite. They're encouraged to be compliant and to be quiet and just to take their medicine. And that, that's not right either. No one should have to be like that. And that's why, you know, Martin has done such a fine job in, in saying things that others don't feel they can say. No, it's, it's a good, really good point on the Champions League stuff, which you're spot on about. The protocol with doing the Champions League that you, you must have done the top flight cup competition as a referee in your country. And Ellery didn't want Clatterbeck. That's the Champions League final, Martin, right? That's it. Yeah, so, so what happens is, so the Champions League final, you can't do the Champions League final if you haven't done the FA Cup final. And Ellery wasn't given Clattenburg the final. So Kalina went to Ellery and said, I believe that, I, this is what I believe, it's what I've been told. Went to Ellery and said, I'm going to give Clattenburg the, uh, the Champions League final. Now, interestingly, that year, Clattenburg also did the semi-final, which was very, very unusual. And, and obviously the conversation, I'm sort of, yeah, I'm sort of guessing here, but and, and it's not far from being accurate. Well, you can't give him the the, the Champions League final if you've if he hasn't done the FA Cup final. And the cleaner said, well, I'm going to write to the board that I want you to give Clattenburg the FA Cup final, and that's how Clattenburg got the got the Champions League final. So that was it, and that's a really good example. Of it. And I don't think that's there now. I know it's not there now because Ellery's gone, and it was that the FA allowing one man to have that much power. Ellery used to call himself the kingmaker because he had a, he, he had a, a, they appoint the FA Cup final, the, the FA Referees Committee. They nominate people for FIFA who come through. So this power of what he had over over it all was was just not right. And now that's gone. And the way Howard Webb has done it, because I'm sure he would have seen that side of Ellery and others, is that he knows that, that what a, in 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 my opinion the consequences of, of that decision-making and that sort of overall authority position and the game's growing better for it. Now, Scott Ledger, I haven't talked to him, but I just know that he hadn't done it for 13 years. A year a year or so after Ellery's gone and all of a sudden he gets it. I don't think Sean Massey didn't uh, had done the, the, the FA Cup final. She was one of the top-flight match officials for years on the line. Never never did never did the FA Cup final. Why? Why? All these other people were coming on doing two or three years on the Premier League and overtaking air and getting a cup final. Just all these little things went on. And then and then we're going in touching on what you said, because I think it's really important. Remember we had Wendy Toms 20 years ago doing doing the Milk Cup final? Then we have nothing for decades. Why? Why? And now we have these people who are in the game, like we discussed in the last pod, podcast with Kelly Simmons, who's just Simmons, who's just retired, uh, Dame uh, Baroness Sue Campbell. People like that influence the women's game and bring it to what it is now. I don't think that's ever going to happen again. And having Bibiana Steinhaus in Germany and, and Stephanie Frappart in France, you know, let's get Rebecca Walsh. To, clearly got, got a, Rebecca Walsh got, clearly got the talent to go in, into the Premier League. If she's good enough, let's give her a go. Go back to what you said earlier. So there's lots of little nuances in, in refereeing that I think that with, with him bringing the curtains back, like Howard said, I think a lot of these other things have come up. Mark Halsey's got some good stories too about I don't know if you know when you're a FIFA official, you get a cap like you do for England as a player. You get a cap FIFA official from this time to that time. Loads of people who got to FIFA never got the caps because Ellery issued them out. Also, and he didn't like it. So, so he just didn't issue them. And then there was, there was I, I think, I'm not sure what it was an FA Cup final. It was a big game at Wembley. And there was a loads of people. There's a photograph there with Martin Glenn, the chief exec then at the time. But all these match officials getting their caps. No one said, why are they just getting them now? Halsey and people like Clattenburg, hadn't had it. Do you know what I mean? Was it, has he just has he just kept them back? Just like yeah, just, yeah, didn't give it, yeah, wouldn't answer, answer emails. This is all in books. It's all out there. I'm not like guessing. He, that, Why? That's the sort of, just because that's but but you you think about it as a match official when you get to FIFA to get to the pro level of football is a great achievement. Like Sam rightly pointed out, the commitment levels, up. availability, putting everything before your family, everything. The, the rate of divorces in the refereeing world is sky high because. You basically put refereeing before everything else. I was guilty of it. Fortunately enough, I didn't get divorced. And and I think when someone has that much power, if he just doesn't answer your emails, you don't get your cap. But these people got together and said, where's our caps for being FIFA Lionel for this, that, and the other? He just, just wouldn't give it to them. Do you know what I mean? So imagine that happened if a player who played for England 
know, and someone didn't like Gary Neville and said, oh, we're not giving you the cap. Why? Well, I just don't want to give it to you. It should be outrage, wouldn't it? So this is where Howard Webb and, and again, Sam, on third time, but having people like you who will publish and talk about this stuff when, when it can be proven, obviously, is so important. It takes the troll away from individuals who've got too much authority in the position they are. There's a lot of rumblings around um, about uh, the other guests that we've all had on have all said they're really thrilled about Howard Webb being in charge. Everybody seems to think that this guy's a force of nature and he's really, really going to move things in the right direction for us refs. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, I think he's he's got a huge job. I think in his situation, you can't please all the people all the time. And week to week, he will have managers possibly even owners on him and he's got to handle that and he's made himself very open and I imagine his phone goes all the time um, but when I say open like he's made himself accessible I think Mike Riley had to do that as well um, but what what gives Howard the authority he's had a brilliant career himself and that World Cup final that he did was a really really tough final you'll remember the the Nigel De Jong um, high boot and and I often think that it's a real measure of a referee when he, he got the feeling that maybe he's not given the right decision in that moment. He doesn't go to, or she doesn't go to pieces. And he really, him and his two assistants that day, I, I felt that night, I was at that game in Johannesburg. They, that was a real hard final. That was a, it wasn't, the Dutch didn't approach that playing total football, whatever the, the opposite to total football is, that's what it was. And, um, and I think, Someone who's got his, who's earned his stripes in the way that he has naturally commands respect. I think he changed the way referees looked in many, in many ways, you know, by, you know, his sort of physical presence on the pitch. So he's, there's no one better qualified in terms of their career. The question now is, is I think his long, his longevity. I think you have to, you have to survive. And that's hard. You don't want any kind of scandals. It's a bit like politics. The longer you stay there, then the more authority you have. And I think the first five years will be hard. I think the demands of TV will get greater and greater. And in some respects, he's, he's fortunate that he's, he's, he's had the experience of introducing VAR in MLS, where it wasn't as high profile as the introduction in Europe and in the Premier League. And so VAR has got to a stage now where it's certainly better than it was when we first had it. And I, I feel the longer he goes on, it will just be... It, it's a bit like a manager once they've won a few trophies that they have that mm. natural authority and and it starts to feel like their club. So I think I think he's a, he's a really good appointment. I would love there's little things that I would love for him to do that I've always annoyed me about the way referees are treated. I think it's totally mad that referees cannot referee or assistants cannot run the line for the team that they support. I think that's mad. I mean I don't. I don't understand why any referee or assistant would torch their own career that, as we've discussed, was so hard to build just to give Newcastle a penalty or a dodgy penalty or to give Tottenham a, a rule out of Tottenham. Goal. I mean, it, judging referees the way sort of eight-year-old kids judge each other, oh, you know, you support you support United, so you're this, or you support City, so you... you of course everyone grows up supporting a team. That's the most natural thing about loving football. You have a team and that's how your love of the game develops. Every journalist has a team. I have a team. You know, that that no one changes that. No one is sort of thinking when they're seven years old, I better not pick a team in case I'm a Premier League referee one day. I mean, that's just insane. So I think by, I think by the football world um, kind of being complicit with this nonsense that you can't referee your own team, then they they put that kind of, paranoia in in the minds of certain supporters they 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 almost reinforce it now there's no way that for example as a journalist i would i would ever ever step back one inch from writing about the club that i support because i don't i don't know any of my any of my fellow journalists who would because it's all about the job it's about doing the job as best you can and surely mm. it's the same with the referees maybe it's and a I bit damage limitation you know with that in case like they're kind of stopping the door opening up in case anything goes off, where they're opening themselves wide open to say, you know, what fans are like, he, he, he did make these decisions because, yeah, you know, I, I'm a massive Liverpool fan and I see it when uh, we have refs that come and you see it on, on social media that they're from 
around the Manchester area and, and you know, there's all these conspiracy theories and I've, I've never really believed it. I, I just think refs, you know, can have bad games like players can have bad games. They have good games, nobody talks about it. Um, I just think it's a bit like that. I don't I, I don't really see, I, I can't really recall a ref that I think oh, he's, he's totally biased against Liverpool or whoever. I just I just no, think I they agree. have good bad games. I agree and I, I, unfortunately though, if, if we... Um... If we sort of accommodate these views, we don't push back against them and say, I'm sorry, that's nonsense. These are professional, highly trained, highly experienced officials who who will run the game as best they can at, at you know, whoever they're refereeing. Then if we if we sort of say, Oh yeah, well actually, you know, you are you are from Greater Manchester, probably best that you don't you don't do Anfield this week. Then to me that's that just you you're just joining in with it then. And I, I, I get your point, it's easier. It, that's that's exactly why they've done it. It's easier just not to do it. Yeah. But unfortunately, that then allows the fermentation of these nonsense conspiracy theories. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's not a hill that Howard wants to die on particularly. You know, that <laughs> it's probably like you know, as you said, Wayne. It's probably easier to leave it alone. But to me, that would be that would be the grown-up way of looking at it. I, I, that's just my view. Well, remember, just imagine if he did the same back to a player, Terry Shellingham. Oh, you played for Portsmouth, you played for Man United, you played for Tottenham. You know, you can't play against them when you're playing for the other team. Do you know, where would you stop? You know, yeah. I, I, I mean, Mrs. once met Kenny Zaglish in the pub once, and there's a photograph. Where do you stop? And I think... I suppose it's... it's sorry, man, go on, sorry. I mean, no, and I think from a personal point of view, and I haven't talked about this much, but we have done it on Twitter. I Because I live down south and I've been down here so long, I got appointed to the FA Youth Cup final, um, uh, second leg Liverpool against Man City, which was a sign, you know, you're going to climb the ladder. Everyone what year was that been, Martin? That was, uh, must have been 2005, I reckon. Michael Richards was the playing for Man City then. It's 2005, we, we, we <laughs> Liverpool won. And when it comes through, I was like, when it come through, I was like, oh my God, happy days. Well, before I could reply, they then come back to me, so we've been told you're a Liverpool fan. Someone in the refereeing world didn't tell many. I'd only told me family and about 10 people and close friends in the refereeing world. They they come to me. So someone was, and I said, Look, I, I'm going to knock it back because I'm going to put myself in a position here, you know, as a Liverpool tattoo because I was a delinquent. I tattooed myself at 11. And, and I had t- 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 with Indian ink and a bleeding. Can we reveal that one day? That'd be a good reveal. Yeah. And it's like, it's um, <laughs> so there's, I was no escaping. I was a Liverpool fan. And I think. And you ask any referee who, who do it like at, um, a game for someone you've played for or whatever, you know, do them a favour. It's always a bleeding nightmare because you feel like you overcompensate and you don't give them anything they should have just to prove the point that you're not yeah, right. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So there's a huge piece on it, Sam. And I think it's it's a really for uh, really you know fair point by you. Is that like where's the trust level? Where's the trust level? And uh, the referee will not be you know biased towards anyone who supports. So it's a really good discussion point. So just quickly to that, just I know we're getting pushed for time, and I don't know how much longer you've got left, Sam. And I, I think we, we we do loads of talking about referees, and I and I felt over the last couple of pods that we've missed stuff that'd be really interesting that people may know you, may follow you, that might find it interesting to know, and I certainly would. Um, and I just think it's, I think I'd like to start asking guests who they support, why, and who's <laughs> the who, who is the favourite ever player? Because I could talk to you all day about mine. And I always find it interesting when I see people that I know and I follow, you know, from you being on TV and listening to you uh, about, and, you know, when we've had other guests on, I've missed the opportunity on two and I don't want to miss it anymore. So I just want to know from you, who is it you support, why, and who is your favourite? It doesn't have to be for that club. You might you might have a favourite player from somewhere else. I'd just like to know. I, just find, I think people might find that interesting. Yeah, I'm going to plead the fifth here because the problem here is, <laughs> is, that, is that it's okay if you support... Stevenage, which is actually the, where I'm from, um, because no one really, you know, they don't really have any enemies, no one minds. But um, because there is that sort of paranoia out there, I, I, I grew up supporting a club that does divide opinion. So um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry that I'm, uh, I, I normally would ask everything, but I'm just, I'm just going to skip this one. Um, and I probably have to skip my favourite player because that will end up, so that, that'll, that'll be a clear sign. Um, but I mean, I look, I, I I'm an 80s kid, so I grew, you know, I grew up in the 80s and then 90s, my teenage years. So, my, um, I mean, I, 
the first World Cup that I really I watched every single game was was '86. I love Maradona, and I just felt that he was he was a great a sort of uh, this tortured soul who who and did a lot of things that were wrong in his life clearly, but but kind of had this his his genius was his burden as well because everyone wanted a piece of him and and. I never felt, even after the hand of God goal, I, I always wanted them to win that final. I really, I wanted them to win in in 1990 as well. After after you know, England, my team had, had lost to West Germany in that semi final, and I just found him kind of, I just found him fascinating. I would love to have met him, um, and he was the thing that always blew me away as a kid was reading about. I was very young then, but I was reading about that injury that he got when he was at Barcelona. He basically had his ankle smashed by Goitachea, who was this defender for Athletic Bilbao. And um, they had some incredible fights with them at Barcelona. There's there's footage on YouTube of the famous one in the final. Yeah, I don't know how the how many red cards that would have been. Quite a few, but um, but he played that World Cup in '86 with a pin in his ankle, (laughs) and you know he he was just and those pitches were rock hard. The sun was absolutely relentless in Mexico, and and he, and he was just so much better than everyone else. And these weren't these weren't just sort of you know we're we're not talking about kind of Isme and Liga. These were the best players in the world, mm-hmm. and he was he was on a totally different level. And that kind of shaped my view of football as a, as a child. And I think really when you when you watch someone like that, you're always you always hold everyone to that standard unfairly because no one could really do what he did but but he watching him also was I mean he did you know he did coat down easily but he he was kicked so much I mean his treatment was appalling and that's that's one of the great things about the modern game is that is that those players are protected would you would you say that is obviously the the argument now because obviously young people these days forget that football existed before the Premier League and they always talk about Messi and Ronaldo would you say that he is the greatest ever, even better than them, in your opinion? It's, it's difficult to say. I mean, look, I, I, this is a bit of a cop-out because it, you, it's very, very hard to measure it by um, because things were so different then in the, in the way that he was just constantly targeted. And, and, and he, was, he was treated brutally. I mean, he could look after himself, but... He'd have been more protected today, wouldn't he? If yeah, today. yeah I, I always say that if... if Someone had done to Messi what Goicochea did to Maradona. They'd be in witness protection. I mean, they, you know, they'd imagine if someone, God forbid, broke Messi's ankle. I mean, people would be horrified at that. And and yet, then it was seen almost as a as a badge of honour. He famously had the boot in a cabinet in his house. You know, so so I, I think what Maradona did, and you know, those those greats that um, you know before my time, Pelé and so on, was that they they thrived, they were brilliantly skillful players. Who thrived in a really in a really different, quite brutal game, and and I think Maradona had none of the sort of protection and the infrastructure around him that the modern players rightly have around them in terms of the money they earn. They're all like mini corporations of the you know in terms of agencies and um, yeah, it's, it's standing on the shoulders of the giants, isn't it? Really, yeah. Yeah, every great footballer pushes the game to its next level, where yeah. you get another great footballer exactly. that goes even further. I think Maradona is sort of. I think you can trace clearly because Messi's the great player of, of our era, so it's not a hard association to make. I mean, he managed he managed him at a World Cup, but but I think you can trace the modern footballer all the way back to Maradona. That this was. A global superstar, a, a man who was just a source of complete fascination. And, and clearly, Cruyff was, and Beckenbauer, and Pele. But for the, for that kind of generation that came in the modern game, that that came, you know, the Premier League was was launched in '92. The previous two World Cup finals, Maradona, Maradona had been the star. He never played in England, um, but he, but, but clearly, I think that he. He was the sort of he, he was a fundamental part of football as as we went into this modern era, which which has generated made so many people so wealthy. Yeah, well, I, I think it's a great point. I think what, one of the questions we should ask them, Wayne, rather than doing what we what we put Sam in a bit of position there, which I can relate to because of what, when I started slagging off Oleg Gunnar Solskjaer and Neil Warnock and everyone else, 
a pep. I was getting battered. Ah, you're only doing that because you're a Liverpool fan. And then when I started doing about club and I got loads of traction, you you should be shameless because you're a Liverpool fan. So you don't <laughs> get battered. So fair play. But have you got, like John Motson famously said about Lee Probert, um, this is my wife's favourite referee uh, during the game. And what Lee Probert was really, really clever on, he's, and he's a friend, so I'm a bit biased. He's over in the UAE now, heads of refereeing over there. Hopefully we'll have him on, him on a podcast. He used to go and sit with the commentators at the games. I know now you're going to have loads of them, but the ones in England, he would go there, get to know them. So because you never really heard many people slagging off Lee Probert. There was a strategy by him I thought was really, really clever. I wouldn't be surprised if other people adopted it. And even when, do you remember he gave that, um, oh, he took his shirt off and had a message underneath. Was it because Leicester player? He took his shirt off and he, he had a message for the the, cha- the the owner who died in the, in the helicopter. Oh, were it Vardy? Vardy? No, it wasn't Vardy. It was a, oh, another player. And he took it off and he said something. He had to book him. He had to book him. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it was that incident. And you see, you know, he does this, uh, people who aren't um, listening or I'm watching on YouTube, he does this like, oh, I'm sorry, Jesse, I've got a book here, you know. And he tapped him on the shoulder and all, all that. And a lot of people said, you know, he, he should have let it go. He should, he, you know, everyone know what the score was. But he knew, and the, that was obviously pre-Howard days, that he would have got battered as a mark for not doing that caution. So there's lots of the nuances again in that side of the game. So I think, have you got a referee you think, you know, if I was a referee, that's how I was referee. I always, I always really liked Mike Dave. I just thought he yeah, did it. He did it. He was great entertainment. He used to make us chuckle in the press box. And um, I think he, he managed the game with his personality. And he just looked like he, he just looked like he was in on the joke. You know, that he knew that a lot of this was just nonsense and a lot of it is posturing and a lot of it is trying to project yourself as the alpha male. And and I just thought he was funny the way he just... Um, it's this famous line, I think it's Lit Red, isn't it, where he, he shows the red... It's, it's the red card and he says, off your cock to the um, to the player. I just love that. I mean... Well, we make T-shirts with that on. It's just funny. That's funny. We've got, we've got T-shirts with that on. We sell it for the charity. We've got a T-shirt and we're still aware to him going off your pop. If people don't find that funny, they've got no sense of humor. And I, I really hope that the player in question could have a laugh about it as well. I mean, it's I, I do I, I I do agree with your point that it would be it would be great if Howard would let the refs off the leash. And because really, I'm I'm not really after an interview with a referee. I'd much rather just have a chat, you know, that's yeah. off the record and just a discussion about why did you do that and what do you think about that and what makes your life difficult, what makes your life easier, because. One of the problems is when you get people on the record is they immediately, and rightly so, they realise that this that this is going to be um, there for all eternity and they're going to be held accountable for it. But um, if you can talk to them in confidence, then I think, you know, people in any walk of life are more prepared to sort of be honest and open about about what they... Um, about how they feel. So, so yeah, I think I think it would be much more useful to have it that way. Super. I, th- I think most people in, in the game would agree with Mike Dean and, and how he was. And, and on the Jeff Winter pod, I said to Jeff, I used to have me appraisals with the FA every three months, whatever it was, about referees coming through. And it was always David Ellery and Neil Barry. And I, and I used to say, how do you, would you describe them? And I used to describe them that a bit more like Jeff Winter than a bit more like uh, David Ellery. And everyone knew what I meant. Everybody knew what I meant. And I'd always wanted more of a Jeff Winter, you know, Phil Dowd was another one, in fairness, and, and a Mike Dean sort of referee. And I think that sort of relatability of, you know, you could, I could have a pint with him. Do you know what I mean? It's that sort of connectability with players and refs and someone historically who isn't that way will find it hard to connect with players and, and a fan base. So I've always wanted, a, I like what you said, someone to have their own personality and, and flower themselves and bloom themselves that's what they do coming up. That's how they, you know, a lot of, lot, of, lot of referees are personality driven. And a lot of them are working clubs and working managers and because club marks count. So you have got to have a, a standard character that I think, you know, should be a bit more open in and a bit less beige. We do need more characters. You see me? Well, listen, I've, I timed it now because, it, you know, I've, I've always, precious about how Sam, I guess, I've got. And we've just gone over an hour now, 104. So I think it'd be a good time to wrap up for you, Sam, because I don't know what busy you are. But honestly, as you can see, you've got some really good uh, man love going on here from us three. We just like, we think it's great. And, and again, I'll end on saying, 
another way you can wrap it up. But you know, just thanks for giving refs a voice, mate. It really does help, and you do it in such a really considered, intelligent manner. And you know, I'll be forever grateful for that. So thanks, mate. Yeah, you're a credit, mate. Thank you. Yeah, thank you from me, uh, mate. It's been a been a really good experience and listening to you and, and your thoughts and stuff. And maybe one day you'll tell me who you support, <laughs> who your favourite player is. I get it how you want. Um, but yeah, so from us, uh, another episode done. Sam Wallace today. Wow, what another one! Great um, podcast for you to listen to. Remember, you can catch us on all the pod services now. I've even sorted the Apple one out today, so you can even grab us on there. Spotify, Deezer, Google Podcasts, all that stuff. You can even watch us if you'd like, uh, YouTube. Everything is the same. Keep telling us every week at the Ref Pod. So whether you're on Twitter, you're on Facebook, you're searching on Spotify, it's all at the Ref Pod. We'll be back um, with the next episode, probably within the next week, because I'm just flying through at the minute. Uh, but until next time, on behalf of me, the Goatee Brothers, and <laughs> Sam Wallace, uh, we'll see you next time on the pod. Thank you very much. Sam, you're a star, mate. Thanks very much. 